All right, Psalm 85. If I were to ask you this evening, a simple question, are you alive? I expect most of you would be able to answer that question. I've seen some nodding heads, a few smiles, that's good. Are you alive? We, we are able to understand what that means and, and answer hopefully in the affirmative if you're hearing my voice. Um, however, if we were to step back in a, in a bit of a larger scale to reflect upon our church gathering here, Read of you Bible chapter. If I were to ask you the same question, are we alive? Are we alive? Maybe it's a little harder question to answer because you may think, well, what do you mean? Are we alive? I mean, like, are we alive for the Lord? Are we, are we feel alive? If we have to think about it for a moment, it's not necessarily the best answer. Because the first question I asked you, like, yeah, of course, I'm alive, and you understand what that means. The psalm before us tonight, the topic centers all around revival. Us. Revive us again. If I could put a title on the message for Psalm 85, revive us again. You might ask yourself, well, are we alive? Okay, that's one question we could debate, and I'm not here to debate that tonight. You can decide for yourselves as we look at amongst us. If we need, uh, need to be motivated along those lines, but maybe another question you could ask somewhat related to it, but maybe a little harder to ask is this. If we needed to be revived, would we want to be? Do we want revival? Revival, if you look at it in the scriptures, but also in narratives you read of in human history and lives in the church, how the Lord work, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of things that need to happen. Now, I'm sure if we step back and say, well, do we want revival? We'd all say, yeah, yeah, we want revival. But I mean to actually think about it because it, it would mean perhaps moving us out of the comfort zone that we are if we're in such a comfort zone. The psalm before us tonight, as I spent a lot of time reflecting on it, these are good questions to ask. Are we alive? Would we want to be alive? Are we half alive? Could we be more alive? May the Lord help us to be more alive. So... We're going to consider Psalm 85. I'm going to read through it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll break it up into little sections and hopefully bite-sized chunks, understand something about what the Lord would have us to, uh, to see. One of the things you'll see right away is that revival is not something that we do. Revival is a work of God. It's, it's God bringing something that is dead back to life. It's literally what the word means, even outside of the context of church or things of the Lord or scriptures or anything like that, to revive someone you bring them back to life that were essentially uh, without life. So let's consider, let's read it, Psalm 85, and then, we'll, like I said, we'll revisit and, and break it up into pieces. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity, or restored the, uh, restored the captives of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all of their sin, Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Turn us or restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord. And grant unto us your salvation. I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. Let them not turn again to folly. 
Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Psalm 85. The first three verses we'll, we'll consider as one little section of the psalm. The first three verses, and I call it looking back. It's almost the, the psalmist saying, how did we get here? Hopefully by that reading, and I apologize if it read too fast, or I know some of these times you have to really stop and kind of meditate on them to understand what it's saying. The psalmist is kind of lamenting where things are and longing for things to be better. You could say that is, is the gist of it. But how did we get here? Well, that's what the first three verses are. It's looking back. How did we get where we are? And I would say if I could have a key word of the first three verses, it is this. Iniquity in verse 2. A lot of times this drifting away or this moving towards death from life. Uh, I notice he's saying us. You have been favorable to your land, your people, us, 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 throughout the hour. The psalmist is including himself, isn't it? He's not throwing stones and saying, I'm the picture of perfection, and yet your people have fallen greatly. No, he's locking himself in with this. He looks back and he says, verse 2, you've forgiven the iniquity or the sin of your people. So I could start by saying this, that dryness or death in our spiritual life, or collectively as a church, starts with sin. I could say almost unanimously. You say, well, what kind of sin? Well, we could speculate, and, and I suppose that might be fun. But um, rather than that, I'm going to turn to the New, New Testament, because uh, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to read a couple verses. The psalmist here is reflecting, obviously, on the nation of Israel. And I'm sure we could uh, brainstorm many, many sins committed by the nation over the years that, that brought bad things upon them. It's much easier, isn't it, to see sins in other people than it is sometimes in ourselves. But rather than to do that activity, we're just going to read what the scriptures say about some of the sins of the nation and then reflect on if perhaps we could be guilty sometimes of the same. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 is talking about how the Lord was not pleased always with his people. 1 Corinthians 10.5, but with many of them, that is the children of Israel, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And here's the list, verse 7, neither be idolaters. As some of them were, it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to drink and play. Neither let us commit sexual immorality as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us test or tempt Christ as some of them tempted and they were destroyed by serpents. Neither murmur or grumble, complain, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happen to them for examples and they are written for our admonition or for our warning on whom the ends of the world come. So four sins were listed there. Sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, testing or tempting Christ, and uh, grumbling or complaining. Now, the last one of them certainly seems in its own category from the first three, but God doesn't do that. I think we would tend to minimize grumbling or complaining. Well, is it really that big of a deal? 
it's that big of a deal. It's written here in, in black and white or whatever color you have in the scriptures before you. These are some of the sins of the nation. Now, could we be guilty of these things? Idolatry, putting things in place of God within our lives, within our homes, within whatever, that will suck the life out of us, bring dryness. What was the second one? The second one was sexual immorality. Well, hopefully for reasons that are self-explanatory, that will destroy the joy of your Lord in your life. Testing or tempting God. Now, that was maybe a bit of a funny one. It's referring here, if you look back in 1 Corinthians 10 there, verse 9, the time when they were destroyed by serpents. So that was the testing, and it was essentially complaining about the food. Remember, they, they wanted different kinds of food and this and that, and, and God sent the serpents, and they had to look upon the bronze serpent to, to live. But it was, it was putting requests upon God that were unreasonable. They weren't what he had said to ask for. And, and as they longed for those things, that too was sin. And again, it got their eyes, got their joy away from the Lord. And then the last one, grumbling and complaining. We could all be guilty of that from time to time, are we not? Now, I would suppose some of us are perhaps predisposed towards finding faults more than others. Um, depends, I guess, on how you're wired or how, how you see the world and some of those things. However, Grumbling, complaining, having a negative attitude all the time, again, it just sucks the life right out of you. It leaves you in a state of dryness, a state of death. You see, all of these sins, of course, there could be many more, but we just mentioned four here this evening. Looking back, we return to Psalm 85 now, verse 3, the collection of all of these things left them in a state where they were not, not in a good place with the Lord, in need of arrival. Verse 2 and 3, the psalmist mentions how God was angry, taken away your wrath, covered your sin, and uh, it was ironic because a few uh, weeks ago, maybe months ago, I spoke here on a Sunday about God's anger, God's wrath. And just as a very brief recap of that, the definition I chose for God's anger that day, I really liked it, was this. God's anger is the measured and reasonable response to the intrusion of injustice and evil into creation. The measured and reasonable response to the intrusion of injustice and evil into creation. As God looks into the world, it bothers him that sin is there. It, it ought not to have been. Now, it's not that he didn't understand it was going to be or knew it was going to be, had a plan to deal with it all along. All of that is true. But as he beholds creation, God understands it need not be that way. And my, my silly example, the best I could come up with at the time, was to picture a, I don't know, a playground with children playing, something that is supposed to be beautiful, fun, joy, safe, peaceful, all of those things, and you see there's some kind of a hazard there. And I mentioned maybe a, a manhole cover that was left uncovered. As I stumble upon that and I see my kids playing the playground, I'm, I'm angry. It shouldn't be that way. That's dangerous. Someone made a mistake and it easily could have been prevented. It could have been different and this could cause great harm. God sees sin. We, we play with sin. We trifle with sin. He sees the end of sin. It destroys us. It destroys our lives. And for all of those reasons and more, God is angry with sin. Now, the key distinction before we continue on from God's anger, I've made it a point. God's nature is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. God is not anger. God's anger is provoked. And in fact, there's a long period of time that God is very long-suffering and puts up with a lot to the point of his wrath being poured out against sin. But it's not like the perception that God is... It's almost like a hair trigger. He's on the edge of just consuming people with anger all the time. That, that's a misread of the scriptures. If someone comes away with that idea. God does get angry. He's angry with sin. But his anger is provoked. 
God's default nature, his love. His anger was covered, atonement, propitiation, God covering that up. So that is the outcome of it. But looking back, he says, we have sinned a lot of things. Now, verse 4 to 7, if I called verses 1 to 3, looking back, 4 to 7, I would call, revive us again. That little phrase tucked into verse 6. Now, verse 4 has an interesting phrase it starts out with as well, depending on the translation of your Bible. I have a King James here tonight. It says, turn us, O God, and perhaps here it says, restore us. Now, there's no inconsistency here. And in fact, I'll give a plus one to the King James on this one. The, the word, as you look into the Hebrew, it meant to put, some, put, something, put something or someone back on the right path. Restore us. So it's the idea, the psalmist saying, you know, help me get back on track. It's an admission that I've, I've drifted. I'm in the ditch. And Lord, help me get back on track. Somebody said, I think it was A.W. Pink one time, when your faith falters, the surest way to restore it is obedience. Obedience to what you know is right. You say, well, I don't feel like fellowship. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like being with the saints and so on. But I know these things are good. And by act of pushing yourself through that lethargy, you're getting back on track, you rekindle the fire and you realize this is, these are good. These are wholesome things. It's great. The Lord fills me up by doing them. Even though you didn't feel them, your feelings, as we know, are very deceptive. Getting back on track, restoring us back on the path that we know is right. The psalmist says, verse 4, restore us, O God, of your salvation and cause your anger to cease. Verse 6, Will you not, and there's our phrase, revive us again. And here is, I would say, one of the key uh, motivating factors of this entire psalm at the end of verse 6. Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. What was the barometer whereby the psalmist knew that things were not right and they needed to be revived? They had no joy of the Lord. They weren't enjoying the walk with God. Now, I am certainly not here to say, boy, I've never had that experience and you all need to figure that out. We all, do we not, have seasons of, I don't know, excitement, jubilation in walking with the Lord when things are, are amazing and then there's these seasons of dryness for sin and for many reasons that they creep in. But it's meant to be a warning sign to us. If you reflect on your life tonight and say, you know what, I don't have much joy in my Christian life right now. Could I say to you very gently, that's okay. It's good to understand that and recognize it. But maybe this is the exact psalm tonight that we need to be hearing. Because as the psalmist realized that the joy was missing, that was his cry out, revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. That is how they knew something was wrong. They were not enjoying their walk with God. So that was the starting point for this whole thing. And then he turns, metaphorically speaking, in verse 7 and cries out, saying, Show us your mercy, O Lord. Grant unto us your salvation. Now, that word mercy is kind of fun because you probably have a different word in your Bible. It's translated half a dozen different ways because it's such a hard word to translate. It's the Hebrew word chesed. If I could say it and someone can correct me if that's not exactly right. I practiced. Really tried. Loving kindness, um, steadfast love, mercy, all of these words are translated for this. And, and why do the translators struggle so much with it? Well, W.E. Vine, who wrote a tremendous Bible dictionary, we're tremendously blessed that he, he put time down. He said this word kesed is one of the most important words in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology. It describes God's 
both commitment but his love relationship with his people. He gave Vine gave the analogy, it's almost, think of it a bit like marriage, that there's a love, but there's also an obligation. It's not all just obligation, like that would not be a very happy marriage if it was all obligation, there was no joy, no love, nothing pleasant as part of it, but it's also in the same time, not just all love and, and fairy tale ending, that's not reality either. There's an obligation to it. It's obligation and love smashed together. That is what God's mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love is. It's a committed love. Now, get a hold of the boldness of the psalmist in verse 7 when he says, show us your mercy, O Lord. I couldn't help but think, you know, my kids, if they do something wrong, and they come to me and say, you need to show me mercy. And I'd almost say, like, is that so? Like, that's not how we're, you're not really in a position to make such demands. And isn't that what the psalmist did here? He comes to his God and says, show us your mercy. Why could he do that? He do that because he knows the character of that was one of the words that God used to describe himself when he introduced himself to Moses up on the mountain, Exodus 34, 6. He says, I am the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in, my Bible says, goodness, chesed, same word. God chooses to reveal himself with that word. He is committed to that word. This is who I am. I want to show mercy. I want to show love. That is the character of God. And the psalmist, knowing that, to make this request, show us your mercy, O God, because I know you want to. Now, they just keep doing what they're doing, keep sinning, and God's going to show mercy? Well, of course not. That, that's where we get into the, the next sections of it. But the psalmist is begging for it because they know they need it. The joy is out. The, the life is dry and death. They need to be revived. And so he makes this statement, please show us your mercy, O Lord. And then what? Verse 8 and 9, we pause. Wait. This isn't a prayer where you pray the prayer and all of a sudden, boom, two seconds later, everything's good, the joy's filled right back up and you're on your way back into life. It probably was a bit of a slow decline to get to the point of death in our walk with God. And it takes some time to build it up. And the psalmist, knowing that, notice he pauses in verse 8. He says, I will hear what the Lord God will speak. I wait. I wait what God is going to speak to me now that I've asked that he would revive us again. Let them not, notice the end of verse 8, oh, here the Lord God will speak, he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. So in this section, 8 9, the words, the key words I see are fear, not folly. Not foolish things. Don't turn back to those things that you know suck the life out of you. Now, again, easier said than done, isn't it? We, we fall, and then we fall again. We are so grateful for the grace and mercy of our, our God. However, there is an expectation that there is some learning that goes along with this, and you realize these things were, were not good, not healthy for our walk. And so he says, they're foolish. Don't, don't turn back on those. Rather, fear. This is another word that is always associated with any kind of revival activity, fear. Now, what is fear? I mean, fear of God is not being afraid uh, in the sense of, of that, but it's reverence, it's respect. I feared my dad growing up. I wasn't afraid that he was going to hurt me, 
but I was always conscious of disappointing him. Someone defined it that way one time, a dread of displeasing someone. There's someone in your life, you're like, no, I just really don't want to let them down. In, in some ways, you could say you fear that person. You're not afraid of them that they're going to beat you up, but you don't want to let them down. That's a great attitude to take a thought. I don't want to disappoint my God with my life. And that was part of this fear as he waited for God to work. Verse 10 becomes a bit more poetic as the psalmist reflects on the ending of this. Of mercy and truth, perhaps you have steadfast love and, and faithfulness is that same word again, Kassid. Mercy and truth are met together. We have a song that we sing sometimes on Sunday morning at the Lord's Supper. It's called Glory to God on High, and it has a verse in it that the, uh, the hymn writer actually borrowed from this psalm. It says, Mercy and truth unite. Oh, tis a wondrous sight, all sights above. Jesus, the curse sustains. Guilt's bitter cup he drained. Nothing for us remains. Nothing but love. Beautiful hymn that it is. Mercy and truth unite. You see, in the world today, as, as I see things, these two uh, words often are not met together. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard the phrase cancel culture. It's that idea that a mistake of someone gets magnified to such a degree that that person is essentially erased from their job, from their whatever they do. Something you've done months, years, decades ago gets exposed on social media for the world to see, and that's it. You're through. You probably have to resign, quit, change your name, hide, whatever it may be. Now, you might ask, well, did you or did you not do this heinous thing? And maybe you did. Maybe there's truth associated with it. Oftentimes, there is not one speck of mercy. Not one. And I think a lot of the times, if we would stop and reflect, if we were in the shoes of that person, it's like those, the scene with the Lord and the woman taken in adultery, isn't it? When he said to him, well, you without sin, you cast the first stone. Like, let's look at this. Let's analyze here. Was there a mistake? Absolutely. But let us be a people that would tend more towards mercy than purely truth. Now, it can't just be all mercy either. Forgiving and accepting everyone and everything. Is there not standards? You see, the challenge of society today is that these two things are often divorced from one another. But God, through the Lord Jesus, brings them together. The beautiful verse, Romans 3.26, that he might be both just and justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. God could not ignore sin. That was the truth aspect of it. But yet God longed to forgive our sins and to bring us back into a relationship with him. That is the mercy of it. So these two things are brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. And for us, it is a beautiful thing. Without truth, we couldn't know the holiness of God. Without mercy, we couldn't know the love of God. By bringing them together, only our God can do that. How desperately we need mercy. When we see sin in someone else, we want truth. We want justice and so on. When it's looked at us, we are glad truth and mercy are united together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring up out of the earth. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. Our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Righteousness and peace, the same idea that it would seem like one would prevent you from getting the other, but they are brought together in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So, as we come to a close on this psalm, I guess I would ask that you reflect on a few things. 
the whole motivation of this revival song, I would submit to you, was a realization that the joy was gone. The joy had run out. Maybe someone either here or in the, under the sound of my voice here tonight, as you look at your own life, you realize, you know, I don't have the joy of the Lord that I want to Again, I say not to blame, but I say, let's stop and reflect why that is. Perhaps, as we inferred, verses 1 to 3, some sin has crept in. Idolatry, sexual immorality, or others. And, and oftentimes we know, and maybe we're just not connecting the dots, that this is the reason why I'm not enjoying that life of the Lord. So the psalmist cries out, I want that joy again. Restore us again. In other words, put me back on the right path. And then revive us again. Take my dead, dry bones and bring them back to life. Only God can do that. There was, a, there was an evangelist in the 1800s in London. His name was Rodney Smith, or sometimes known as Gypsy Smith. Maybe you've heard this story many, many times because he's very well known for saying it. But he was associated with a few revival works. And, and someone asked him one time how a revival begins. He said this, I will read it so I get it exactly accurate. But he said, you go home. You lock yourself in a room, you kneel down in the middle of the floor with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. And there, on your knees, you pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that soul. See, it starts with me. It starts with you. Very easy for us to say, yeah, we should do better. Well, let's start right here. I can do that. Oh, Lord, bring me back to where I ought to be. Revive me again. And as we adopt that mindset, we see the sin in our lives, we shove that aside, we say, Lord, we need you to empower us, revive us again. God will do a work among us. It's not overnight. That's why there was verses 8 and 9 there. If you are serious about this, you ask, you wait. You wait on the Lord. And the Lord will light fire again. He can bring dead to life. Fear not folly. We turn not back to the foolish things that we know got us off track. We instead aspire to fear the Lord as we ought. I'll close with this. Um, Tim Keller, who I know is known to many here, he's passed on to be with the Lord now. He wrote one time, stealing the verse out of this, uh, this psalm, he wrote a prayer. He shared one time with his congregation. He said this, he said, Lord, I am spiritually dry. Send me the water of your spirit. I was created and destined to enjoy you forever, yet I'm not doing that right now. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And that was a man who uh, I probably couldn't fill his shoes. So it's meant, I share with you not to, to glorify him, but rather just to say, none of us are immune. There's times in life where the joy gets zapped. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do. Will you not revive us again that your people will rejoice?